We're in the transformation business. I want you to think about that for a while because that's where we're going this morning. We are in the transformation business. A few weeks ago, Debbie and I were at, uh, I think it was Chinook Mall, and she had gone into one more store than I thought I could bear. And so I just sat outside on a bench near two gentlemen, older gentlemen, who had their arms folded like this, and uh, were, just, were just chatting the whole time. They sort of looked like the two old guys on uh, the Muppets that sit up in the box seats, and they were a lot like them in a lot of ways. Uh, as people walked by, they made comment to one another on what they saw and what they thought about what they saw. Com comments like, well, that's an interesting hairstyle choice. Or, I thought velour tracksuits went out in the 1990s. How, does, how do his knees support that kind of weight? Those feet on that young man have to be at least size 15. How do his parents afford the groceries? The commentary was nonstop. And two things happened while I was sitting there listening to them, other than me sort of giggling at these two guys who were so opinionated. The first was that I was afraid to get up and walk away for fear of what they might say about me <laughs> and what I was wearing. I quickly checked to see if I had velour on and how my hair was looking. But, but the second thing that I thought about was how we look at people in our world. What we say, what we think, how we treat one another. We, we walk into a room of strangers and we start sorting through the crowd, making mental post-it notes about each person. Tall, short, mean-looking, kind, extrovert, introvert, fashionista, plain Jane, likable, unlikable, old, young. Then according to our own personal history, our, our fears and our insecurities, our political leanings, our preferences, we make decisions on people. Do we risk talking to them? Do we, do we avoid them? Are they worthy of our attention? Do I like or dislike them? Do I find time for them or not? Do I find them interesting or irritating? How many have run into irritating people this week? The rest of you don't live in our world or what? Like, where, where have you been? You've not driven on Deerfoot? Like... I've also been watching news stories recently and have been working on a personal opinion about political leaders and criminals, protesters, movers, shakers in business and the arts, sports personalities and commentators on my world. While my opinions have been evolving throughout the story, I've heard the Holy Spirit ask me this question. What does God think? about that person? What does God think about the person that I'm developing an opinion about, even though I don't know them, even though I've never met them, even though we've not met face to face? How does God look at the people in my world? I, I'm sometimes asked by people, 
what I think of someone. Do I like them? Do I agree with them? Do I enjoy spending time with them? And, and like you, I have likes, I have dislikes, I have preferences and a personal history that, that wants to dictate who I connect with and who I stay away from. However, I've been in ministry long enough to realize that my first observation about someone isn't always that accurate, that people can't be evaluated by a three-second glance, and that some of the greatest people are not what they originally appeared to be to me. God speaks to us about people in our world and, and checks our hearts, checks what we think about those people, uh, checks our, our hearts, and he does it for two reasons. The first is that he's attempting to adjust my thinking wants me to not copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but to let God transform me into a brand new person by, by changing the way that I think. That's what Paul says to me in Romans chapter 12. He, he continues and he says, Bill Olson, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Not, not of everybody else, but of yourself. Measuring yourself by the faith that God has given you. Not, not using personal preference to measure others, but to use faith to measure myself. That's an interesting and challenging way to look at the world. The second reason ties into our series, Empowered, that we complete today. You, you will be empowered to be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. God wants us, God wants us to be able to approach, to connect with, to speak to, to serve, to love people that are beyond our scope of preferences. He wants to be able to dispatch you to a person that he loves and that he cares about without hearing, I, I'm sorry, Father, I, I, that's not my kind of person at all. I, I don't care for people that are different than I am, that don't hold to my traditional values and beliefs. I, I, I don't want to be seen with someone who might compromise my reputation or make people think that I that I think like, vote similar to, or act like them. So could you send somebody else? There's an incident that I've been thinking of and reading through and, 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 and just going over a lot over these last many weeks. And, and it's, a, it's a familiar encounter that Jesus had, had that has me reevaluating how I think, how I react to people. It's, it's found in John chapter 8, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. J Jesus is staying just outside the city of Jerusalem at night, and then each day he's returning to the temple, and, and he's standing there, and he's teaching the scriptures to the people. And on this particular day, it says in the second verse, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. A couple of very important things that I see as I, 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 and I want to point out as we read that. The, the first is that religious teachers and the Pharisees were the enemies of Jesus. 
They were looking for a reason to discredit him. They were, they were looking for a reason to arrest and silence him. He, he didn't think like they did. He didn't act or behave like they wanted him to. And so they found him to be a threat to their very way of living and loving God on their terms. So, so right off the bat, the first observation that I would want to make is that how we look at Jesus, the value that we find in him will determine how we treat and value other people. They, they could care less about this lady. They just hated Jesus. And so it didn't matter how they treated the lady. The way that we look at Jesus, the value that we find in him will determine how we treat other people. If he is who we say he is, if he is our Savior, if he is our Lord, then we will adopt a perspective on people, all people that he has. Even the ones we don't agree with, even the ones that we don't particularly like. If he doesn't hold, if, if he doesn't hold that esteem in our hearts, then we'll tend to be like the crowd. We'll, we'll tend to be critical and judgmental and, and sometimes downright cruel. As Jesus is teaching these men bring a woman and set her in front of the crowd. The, the descriptor is, is that she was caught in the very act of adultery. She, she was discovered by this band of, band of men to be in a sex act with a man that wasn't her husband. And that means that the men went around looking for someone in that situation in order to test Jesus. Looking perhaps in windows or following suspects through the street until they found a guilty party. They, they, they then barged into the situation, apprehended the half of the guilty party and dragged her to the temple and placed that person in front of the crowd. You know that part of the thing that bugs me crazy is why did they grab her? Why didn't they grab him? Drives me nuts. Do I get extra points for bringing that up on International Women's Day? Like, <laughs> drives me nuts. My own take is that they knew and liked the guy. And so they left him. Their cause wouldn't have been advanced if they made the story more complicated than they were ready to make it. And, and the rule was that adultery was to be punished and... And the question was, would Jesus punish a sinful woman? Verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Moses was the gold standard of religious establishment of Jesus' day. They, they took the law of Moses and they turned it into a weapon. It, it had been designed by God to be a tool to point out that all of us, without exception, have sinned and we've fallen short of the standard of God's conduct. And so we all need a Savior, so, so God will send Jesus. But these religious aficionados had, had turned it into a weapon to get rid of people that they didn't value, that they didn't agree with, that they disliked. As I said, they were not as concerned with or as hateful toward the woman as they were toward Jesus. This was a test. If he failed, and they were sure he would, 
that would be grounds to arrest him. That would be grounds to, to accuse him and to have him punished. So, so here she is. She's been caught in the act. No question about her guilt or innocence. The law says we stone her. Now, good teacher, what do you say? Think about it carefully because you're, you're going you're gonna to get in trouble no matter what you do. Verse 6 says they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But, but Jesus stooped down and he, he wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. And, and so he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down and again wrote in the dust. Every one of us loves it when people are mad at us and, and try to trap us into saying something that we wouldn't usually say, tries to trap us into saying something that, that will get us into trouble. We, we hate that, don't we? We just we, we freeze up. We don't want to say anything. We want to run away. And our, and our first reaction is, is generally to speak up, to, to defend ourselves, to inform our enemies about how we've been misunderstood, how we've been misquoted, how we've been misinterpreted. And, and Jesus doesn't respond to the, to the challenge that way at all. They, they are expecting him to use some sloppy form of grace teaching to teach that this sinner should be let off the hook, that, that he would look for a loophole that they knew didn't exist so that he could excuse her behavior. They, they thought he was corrupting society by, by taking public morality into a gray zone. They loved it in either black or white, but gray they didn't know what to do with. They were protecting the community standards of the day and that had been set by no one less than Moses and had served the nation well for generations and for centuries. But Jesus doesn't fall for their tricks. He doesn't respond. Instead, he stoops down and starts writing words in the dust with its fingers. It doesn't say what he wrote. It doesn't say what, what, what was there but I think he's listing the sins of the teachers of the Pharisees, the one who brought the lady and deposited her in front of him. Perhaps tax fraud, liar, thief, abuser. And they're not making the connection. But Jesus doesn't respond, and, and they keep saying, listen, we need to know, what will you do? This is the test. We need to know if you're a true teacher, a true prophet, or whether you're a false prophet. We need to hear from you. What do you say? What is your opinion? What do you think we should do with this woman? And so he stands up at their insistence, and he gives an answer. You who are such strict followers of the law of Moses... Let us observe the law and let us carry out the sentence that you have imposed on this woman. They're a little surprised by that. But he puts a caveat in there and he says, However, there is one restriction. Only those who themselves have never sinned can pick up and hurl a stone. 
If justice is to be carried out, if this woman has been found guilty and needs to be dealt with according to the law, then only the ones who have never sinned are allowed to administer that justice. Otherwise, we will need to go through the crowd and deal with her first and then address the wrong dealing, the, the, the wrong uh, doings in each of your lives. But they, they kept pushing. And, and Jesus says here, like Paul says in Romans, when, when you start judging, when you start evaluating people, start not at the window of someone else as you look in on them, but start in the mirror. Start with yourself. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest with yourself. Be honest in your evaluation, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given you. When I asked who had been irritated, and several of you said by other people this week, and several of you, I put up my hand too. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know how often I've been irritating to someone else. Debbie, no testimonies now. I just saw Pastor Eric trying to get her to stand up and testify. <laughs> I, I don't know. You see, there's a principle in the New Testament that says that the same measuring cup that you use to evaluate others is the same measuring cup that God will use in measuring you. If you're using, if you are measuring people strictly by the letter of the law, looking for the fullest impact of the law to be their punishment, God says, that's how I will evaluate you and punish you. It's only fair. What you do for others is what should happen back for you. But if you have mercy, if you see the law as a tool that points to a need for a Savior rather than a weapon that can be used to get a conviction, then God evaluates you and your work, and you will use, He will use that same measurement when He comes to correct you in your life. You see, I have no inherent good in me. To the very core of my being, I am a descendant of Adam, and I am a sinful man. And if there's anything good in me, it's not because I was able to produce it. It's the grace of God, His patient work in me, that has brought me to be who I am. I'm not a spiritual elite. I am a sinner that has had God's mercy showered on me time after time after time after time. In the same way that I have been treated, I am now commissioned by God himself to go out and treat and love and serve others in a way that I have been treated by God. While I was a rank sinner with no promise or guaranteed of a turnaround in my life, God sent his full love and acceptance to me in the person of Jesus Christ. And now I am sent as a witness to that love, as a witness to that forgiveness, to the broken, to the wounded, to the destroyed people in my world, even to the irritating ones. John 3.17 says that when God sent his one and only son to the world, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn or judge the world, 
but to save the world. He, he, he does not send me to judge or condemn the people in my world, but to send, he sends me to, to be part of the rescue effort to, to bring them to Jesus. John catches the, the mood swing, catches the, the swing of this angry, vengeful crowd absolutely perfectly in verse 9 when he says, When the accusers heard these words of Jesus, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I like that they're identified this way. When the accusers heard. When we hear Jesus talk about the accuser of the brothers, we know that it's the devil. And he's saying, listen, I know where that accusing attitude, that accusing spirit comes from. And so when the accusers heard this, they slipped away. Accusers, the, the prosecutors of the law of Moses who were looking for a conviction of a guilty woman, but they realized that they themselves couldn't risk being exposed for the crimes that they had not yet been caught committing. It, it, it started with the oldest in the crowd. He, he was the first one to catch on as to what Jesus had said and how it impacted him. And, and the one who had the longest rap sheet by, by virtue, the the, the longest career in sin-filled rebellion to God that he said he belonged to and represented. You see, James says this. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and not to do it. Quietly and, and, and without fanfare, the accusers drop their stones and they walk away and, and start to look for another way to trap Jesus. They, they don't have a turnaround in their life. They're just embarrassed that they got caught. And, and so they slink away and start thinking about other ways that they might catch him. Their life is not transformed. Their, their direction is not redeemed. Soon it was only Jesus standing in the midst of the crowd with the accused woman sitting there in front of him. And then Jesus, with compassion, looks at the woman and says, where do you think your accusers are? Are there none left? Didn't even one of them stay long enough to condemn you, to, to throw a stone at you? And I, I hear her verse, voice timidly and thankfully, sincerely replying, no, teacher, there, there's not one of them that's still here. And then the only one who could have rightly convicted her. The, the only sinless one to have ever walked the earth. The only one who has faced all the same testings as we do, yet did not sin, according to Hebrews 4.15. Jesus could have picked up as many stones as it took to have them hurled with righteous indignation and could have made sure that this woman paid the full price for her sins. And he would have been well within his rights to do that, but that wasn't who he was. He didn't come to condemn and punish the world. He came that the world might be saved. And so he doesn't pick up the stones. 
He turns to her and says, I don't condemn you either, miss. You get a new start, starting right now. You're not who you were when you arrived, when they brought you here. Old things have passed away. Everything in your life is now new. You're forgiven. You've, you've had a transformation. Don't go back to the place where, where you were when we first met. Live in the new life that I'm giving you right now. We're in the transformation business. We, we don't care about what's gone on or where you've come from or what you've even done. Jesus said of the people that you and I are sent to serve, I have, I have other sheep too. You, you see, we're in this transformation business. We, we help people move from death to life. We, we love people out of their hopelessness into hope. And, and, and we believe that Jesus can do that. We believe that God can turn mourning and sorrow and, and absolute heartbreak into dancing. And, and, and we only do our work if we see our world through his eyes. We, we can only be heard. We can only be accepted by the people that need the message of hope and transformation if we know that like Jesus, we don't see them as a wreck and ruin of society living on the bottom of the barrel of life, but if we see them the way Jesus sees them, of value, of value. I have other sheep, more sheep, that are not yet part of this fold. I, I must bring them into relationship with me also, Jesus said. My, my job, your job, our assignment is not to slaughter sheep for their wrongdoing or fight with or bully those sheep, but to love and show them with our words, but more with his power that the best place to be in all of life is in the care and the keeping of the good shepherd who loves you desperately. Remember our theme verse for the empowerment series has been Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. If I'm going to be his witness, if I'm going to be the advertisement of what is to be transformed by the one who loves and transforms me, then I have to carry his attitude into my work, into my connections and relationships. I, I have to adjust my attitude. I have to change my vocabulary. I have to adopt his approach. I, I, I don't come into the world to condemn or to judge, but to demonstrate the full story of God's love and presence There's some times that I think I should maybe throw Facebook away and don't get too excited there. It's not so much the political stories, although those drive me crazy, or, or the fighting that goes back and forth. Lots of times it's just the lack of graciousness that Christians have towards people. dear friend wrote on the Facebook this week that, I'm going to get in trouble for that, the Facebook, right? Wrote on Facebook this week calling the Prime Minister an idiot. He's a pastor. I 
You see, after I've cast my ballot in the box, I only have one responsibility for God, and that is whoever is elected, I pray that God will bless them and lead them and cause them to govern well so that we can do our work. Now, does that mean I always agree? No. But my job is not to demean a man or a woman who's been put in a place of authority, according to Romans chapter 13, by God. By God. Well, hold on, Pastor Bill. I'm not sure that God voted liberal. All authority is given by God. I've been badgered by this verse all week. That the distinguishing mark of who we are and where we belong is this. That we love each other. Allow me to quickly go back to the self-evaluation that I've used at the beginning. Where, where we're told by James, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given you. So if there is a tape recorder that's attached to the lapel of my shirt or a, a monitor on my social media, an evaluation run on my comments while I'm driving through the streets of my city, would there be enough evidence to convict me of being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? The power of the Holy Spirit transforms me and makes me more like Jesus so that people know something of who he is by seeing who I am. It's that seeing Jesus in me that gains me access to the pain and the sorrow of people's lives to give them evidence of the transforming power of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? We're going to have to back up and do this again, I think. You know, he, th there has to be transformation in the way that we see, the way that we talk about people, all people, whether we agree with them or not. We have to work, we have to change to see people like Jesus sees people. Jesus loves people unconditionally. It's not dependent on whether they do or do not do what he asks. He still loves them. I, 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 don't, I don't lecture you, miss, on your activity in the years before you were brought to me, but I do tell you that there's a new beginning that starts for you now. I, I, I'm not going to pick away at your, your choices and your decisions in the past, but I'm just letting you know my love transforms you. You're not the same as when you came here. Jesus lives in this thing of forgiveness. Have you ever got caught counting how many times you've forgiven somebody? 70 times 7? Okay, I'm now on 349. I'm just about done with you. But then he adds that it's per day. 
You see, Jesus forgives. He forgives me. He forgives you. I, I think of the parable of the father at the gate looking for his son. And when the prodigal returns, the, the son afraid of the, the, of, of the rejection of his father because he's broken his father's heart and, and afraid of the consequences says, listen, I, I, I've been a disappointment to you and I, and I don't deserve to be your son, but I, I want you to make me a hired hand. And the father says, shh, no more about what's past. You were lost, but now you're found. You were dead, and now you're alive in my arms. Quick, bring all the, the rights and the, and the responsibilities of sonship. Everything that says he's my beloved son and deck him up so everybody knows. Don't talk of the old anymore. Forgiven and forgotten. It'll never be held against you Again, son, you're, you're under my house. You live with no titles or descriptors other than you are my son. And Jesus tells that story so that we know that's how we're handled when we come into his, his presence. And we know that that's how we handle other people. Jesus believes in the God-given purpose of, of each individual. R remember Simon, the, the angry, emotionally unstable, fly-off-the-handle individual that had violent tendencies. Jesus said, you are no longer unstable, but I call you Peter the stable boulder. I, I, I say of you that you have purpose, and the enemy is attempting to derail you before you fulfill it, but I have prayed that you will be protected, that you'll be safe. I, I believe that you will fulfill your God-given purpose. And then Jesus sees people, Jesus sees you and sees me and sees the people that were sent to love and serve with hope and promise. If you hold on to the measure of faith that he has given you, if we love and forgive and believe and transformation is always possible. Always possible. I, I'm seeing Saul turn to Paul in our day. Who would ever have thought that there would be a rapper who would have an epic turnaround and transformation and start writing worship concerts? Politicos who, who hated God that are now serving him. There is always hope. God looked at Saul and said, I see a Paul that's going to go all over the world establishing things. We, we, we need to be afraid of mistakes in our judgments. In my second year of Bible college, my training, the dean of students spoke to our entire class. And uh, he said, I've been watching you for the last two years, and I, I'm going to tell you something that's very important. And he went in front of five desks, and he put his hand on five young men, and he said, these are the five young men who are going to end up in ministry. They're the men that God's going to use. And then he went to a few of the others, me included, 
and said in a voice that was loud enough to be heard by others, I don't think you should return next year. I want you to know that the five he laid hands on, three of them aren't serving Jesus and none of those five are in ministry. And there's only two of us who were both told not to return the next semester that are still in leadership ministry. We never know what God's going to do. He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. The, the, the back story to that is at the ordination service, this same professor had been invited to come and speak. And before Jesus had gotten a hold of my tongue or is still trying to get a hold of my tongue, the, the professor said, aren't you supposed to be ordained today? And I said, I'm going to be ordained at my home church. Well, why is that? And I said, because I didn't want your unbelieving hands on my head. <laughs> Here's the word. Love never gives up. Never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love never gives up. You see, we're sent to people because we're in the transformation business. And, and what the enemy tries to do is harden our hearts to make us hard of heart make judgments against people, to, to disconnect us, to make us back away, to try to convince us that it's best if we don't get involved in people's lives. But it's the reason you're here. Will you stand? Will you adopt the, the receiving posture this morning? Just hold out your hands. So, Father, this morning, I'm asking for the love of God to flood each heart and each mind in Christ Jesus. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would take every bit of hardness out of our heart, every bit of stone out of our heart. I'm asking that you would heal unforgiveness that you would heal hatred, that you would, that you would drown it in your unbelievable love, your immeasurable love. I'm asking that, God, you would redeem histories today, that, God, you would set our feet, take us out of the miry clay and set us on a path of redemption. I pray this morning that hearts would be set afire with the love of God, the love that God had for the world, that he gave of his most precious possession, his only son, and that, Father, you would find us ready and willing to give our lives for your cause. I'm praying, God, for a fresh baptism in your love. That, God, you would open our eyes and open our understanding to see people like you see them to the people that have been written off, the people that maybe we've even written off, that, God, you would show us your redemptive purpose in their life and the part that we play.
I pray, God, that you would give us such an urgency, such a love, such a deep commitment to the mission that you've put on our lives and on our church that week by week it would be said of this church as it was said of the first century church that daily God added to their number such as were being saved. I'm asking that the work of the evangelist would come upon the hearts and minds and lives of people in this house right now. That God, as they share the goodness and the faith, oh, you're so faithful and so, so good. That as they share that with people, that there would be something attractive that just brings people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I'm praying for their person person that they love, the person that they're praying for, the person that they're, they're believing for. God, I'm asking that you would use them in a mighty way to reach lost people. God, there's still, there's still people out in our world that have a redemptive purpose and need to be brought to Jesus. And so I'm asking that you would speak in dreams and in visions, that God, you would release love and concern that, Father, like the, like the prophet of old who cried before you, God, if, if you don't do it, take my life and save them instead. God, would you, would you use us in a mighty way to pray for and to, to love people to Jesus? Father, I feel like there's, there's some folks here in the, in the room today that have issues with parents, and I'm just asking right now that, God, you would help them resolve those issues so that that, that hardness of heart can be re, reworked and, and that, God, they can love unconditionally like you do. And Father, there's some folks here who are working with some rather difficult and irritating people. I'm praying for grace, for a grace to come on them. I'm praying for a grace to come on them so that they would love not out of their own resources, but out of your infinite resource, with wisdom, with understanding, with faith. Father, help us to look in the mirror like James tells us to do and see what needs to be changed and change by faith those things that need to be addressed. God, I'm believing that this is a season for us to love people into the kingdom. We deputize all of these people to do that very thing in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen.